Well, good morning, Sterling College. I love getting to be here with you all. Again, my name's Caleb, uh, and I get to serve as the pastor with King's Cross up in Lyons. But I want to start with a bit of a bizarre story from the book of 1 Samuel in the Bible. It's actually a story that Dawson Erwiller was just preaching from this past Sunday. But it's about a pretty terrible and all-around awful king named Nahash of the Ammonites. Fantastic name, by the way, Nahash of the Ammonites. And he was absolutely brutal and oppressed the people of Israel to the extent that he gouged out the right eye of every man that lived in the vicinity near his kingdom. Not exactly the best way to win friends and influence people, right? But this absolutely terrified the people of Israel, terrified them. So much so that the the other people living in the vicinity near his kingdom fled to a city called Jabesh-Gilead. And they go into the city, but Nahash follows them, and he surrounds the city and demands that they surrender to him. And they try to make a treaty, but he says the only terms that he'll accept is if they surrender and he's allowed to gouge out the right eye, again, of every man in the city. And clearly, the people of Jabesh Gilead are not super pumped about this treaty, not the best one they've ever heard about. So they ask, let us send messengers out to the people of Israel to see if anyone will come and rescue us. And Nahash is so confident that he's going to be able to humiliate them and no one will come to rescue them that he allows them to send out messengers. And they go out, they begin to spread this word of what Jabesh Gilead is facing, and they come to the newly appointed king of Israel named Saul. I mean, he's fresh as fresh can be and in entering into this kingship. He's just been crowned king, but people are hardly following him. And when he hears the news, he's actually behind his oxen plowing a field. And when he hears this, he's so livid and angry that he slaughters his own oxen, chops them up into pieces, and then sends out messengers with the pieces saying, I will do this to anyone's oxen who refuse to come out and help me to fight against Nahash of the Ammonites. This works. A massive group of people come out from Israel to fight. And Saul sends a message back to the city, and he says, by this time tomorrow, when the sun is up hot in the air, you will be delivered. When this news comes to the city, they're elated, they're overwhelmed with joy, they're so glad because, I mean, hear me, they were just surrounded and helpless. They had no hope at all, but now Saul and the people of Israel are going to deliver them. And Saul keeps his word, he shows up, they absolutely devastate the Ammonites, and he says that not even two of them were left together, they all flee But this story, it's been on my mind lately because I've been thinking about the power of this moment when the people hear this news from Saul that they will be delivered. How powerful that had to be for them. Because again, they're surrounded. They're, They're helpless. They cannot deliver themselves. Their only hope is that something outside of them will come to rescue them. So how joyful they must have felt when they hear this news that Saul and this army is on the way. They were helpless, 
But now suddenly they're going to be delivered, and all they have to do is just sit back, relax, and get ready to celebrate. Such good news. And we in Christian circles, we sometimes use this word, you probably have heard it many times, called the gospel. The gospel. I know it's a really religious sounding word, but it simply means good news. Good news. And notice, if you think about news, it's always something like what Jabesh Gilead experienced, something that's happened outside of you, something that's occurred that now comes to you. You receive this information of what's happened beyond you. Because it was, if it was from you, it, it wouldn't be news at all. But something has happened that's monumental and transformative and important, and that word and information comes to you and it changes everything. That's good news. That's gospel. So Saul's not saying, hey, Jabesh Gilead, I'm going to come to you with some advice, maybe put some more people up on the walls, maybe some encouragement. You can do this. You got what it takes. He's not giving them a law saying, if you live in a better way and keep all these rules, maybe this won't happen to you next time. None of those things. He comes with gospel, with good news, that they need to do nothing, but they will be delivered. So as we Christians talk about the gospel, we mean that though we might be helplessly surrounded Though we might be overwhelmed by shame and guilt, we have this good news that God has come in Jesus to rescue us, and we need do nothing. That while we might be living in fear of death, God has come in Jesus and defeated death and the grave. That he's been resurrected and it has no hold on him and it will have no hold on those who believe in him. We need do nothing. So what good news again that this has happened outside of us in history, and now we receive this transformative, life-impacting word, this good news. I believe that this truth about who Jesus is and what he has done for us is the most important, the most transformative thing in our world. It has incomparable power to take those who are destitute and lost and full of shame and to transform them. And I love it. It's the power of God. But I just want to own right now, I know that many of you have grown up in or around the church or you've just tasted enough of religion to want to be distanced from it. So I'm talking here about the gospel and Jesus and God. And for you, it just seems maybe these things are a bit irrelevant for your life, or boring, or they've been filled with hypocrisy in the groups that you've been in. So this morning, I just want to look a little bit deeper about why you should care as a college student about how this good news is coming into your life. And we could look at all sorts of different areas of life, but you're in a unique moment here as a college student that's beautiful for its capacity for community. You have such an opportunity of developing new friendships that you'll maintain the rest of your life. So how does this gospel of Jesus, this good news about what he's done and who he is, how does that shape you in community? How does that shape you in community? Hear this, hear this. 
The gospel fosters authentic community. The gospel it leads us into, fosters, grows real, authentic, deep, true community with one another. And this is something I think we all deeply crave and that we need. Whether we admit it or not, we all are deeply needing true community. I love this study. It was done back in the 1970s when the war on drugs was just beginning to take off. They began to do a lot of research about why drugs were so addictive. And the basic theory, not very complicated, was that drugs are addicting because they're addicting in and of themselves. We just can't resist them. And so they'd done this research where they had put a rat alone in a cage. And they put two bottles in that cage with the rat. One just had water in it, and the other was laced with drugs. And they found that time after time after time, this rat alone in the cage would begin to compulsively drink from the water bottle that had the drugs in it. It became addictive and kind of proved obviously, well, yes, because drugs are addictive in and of themselves. But this didn't seem to tell the whole story because we knew that there were many people who were taking very powerful forms of the same drug while they were in a hospital, and they'd be taking them for a fairly long period of time, but when they would go home, they would no longer be addicted to them or need them. Or again, there were soldiers in Vietnam who would get addicted to drugs, but when they would come back to the States and to their family, they would be able to leave that addiction behind. Why? How were they able to do that? Seemed to be a gap here. There's another researcher named Bruce Alexander that repeated the same experiment, but with a very important twist. Instead of putting a rat alone in a cage, he instead made this rat park heaven. I love this. Like he, he made all these wheels and games and food. Rats never had it so good. Like This was the best place a rat could ever hope to live. And he put the same two bottles of water, one that was just straight H2O and the other that was laced with these drugs. And they found that not a single rat was compulsively drinking from the one that had the drugs. Some would try it, but none of them became addicted in the same way. So Bruce Alexander and his partners, they were realizing that, yes, drugs are addictive in and of themselves, but it's our cages that make us so vulnerable. It's our loneliness that makes us so susceptible to unhealthy behavior. We need healthy community. And man, is this not a deep need in our culture right now with an epidemic of loneliness? There's this research from a group called Cigna, and they found that almost 50% of people said that they feel sometimes or always that they are lonely. Or again, 43% said that they sometimes are always feel that their relationships aren't meaningful. That's amazing to me. Almost half of people say they sometimes feel that their relationships, they're not meaningful. None of them. They might know a lot of people, but none of their relationships are deep and meaningful. And I, I wonder what this is like for you as a student here on this campus, that you have sports teams that you're a part of, you have classes that you're in the midst of, but do you not know that there's a difference between being surrounded by people and being surrounded by community? That you're always around people, but you're not necessarily always around deep, meaningful friendships. And do you feel this? 
It's interesting, even as we deeply long for community, it can be incredibly difficult to find. It is evasive and hard for us to get a hold of. And I just want to lay this out for a little bit wide. Just stay with me. It's going to get a little bumpy. We're in the rapids right now, but just stay with me. One of the challenges of finding real community is that there's this tension, this tension between having enough security in who you are that you can approach the people around you without needing them for affirmation. You hear me? So you have to have security in yourself without needing the community around you to affirm you. But at the same time, this security in yourself can't lead you into pride and judgment and looking down on other people. So how do we have a security that doesn't need others, but at the same time doesn't judge other people? This is incredibly difficult. If you do not know, and if you're not secure in who you are, we will naturally begin to look to the people around us for affirmation. We'll begin to look to them for compliments. We'll begin to look for how many likes we get on social media. What kind of applause do we get from those around us? We need approval from our friends. But this just leads us into anxiety of whether or not we are liked enough. So hear me. Security that you try to get from the community or people around you will lead you into anxiety. You'll never know if you have been good enough, funny enough, kind enough. They may like you today, but will you continue to be liked tomorrow? You never know if you've done enough, and it can be exhausting. And this is why it's so common for people to create a false self, to put on a mask, and assume the behavior and personality that they think those around them will most like. You hear me, right? This is not foreign. So we want to learn, what do I need to do so that people will like me more? I can't bring out my true self. I need to create a false self. But this too is just exhausting as you're maintaining an act and you are fake and not real with the people around you. And this just shortcuts community. Because if you have a false self and aren't relating to people in an honest way, you're robbing yourself of the vulnerability that creates deep community that people really understand what you're struggling with, but you can't open up if you have a false self. Or on the other hand, you have people that lean into such exceeding and excessive vulnerability that they're constantly talking about their weaknesses. You ever seen this? Constantly talking about how terrible they are, hoping that those around them will affirm them, can manipulate some kind of applause and affirmation from people. So if we look to the people around us, for who we are and our sense of security, it will lead us into anxiety. This is why, hear me, in our culture, self-esteem is such a popular and central idea right now. I mean, celebrity after celebrity, movie after movie, tweet after tweet, all of them, have you noticed, are emphasizing the importance of learning to love yourself. I mean, self-affirmation could not be more normative in our culture that's so defined and inundated by social media. So increasingly, we talk about the importance of learning to love and accept and affirm ourselves. And there, honestly, is some truth to this. Just let me acknowledge this real quick. The Christians, we confess that we have been created in the image of God and that he knit us together in our mother's womb. And so we should not denigrate or look down on what God has made, but we should appreciate and even marvel 
and be in wonder and grateful for what God has created, who he has created us to be. So yes, we should acknowledge and appreciate who we are. But come back to this tension with me one more time. The tension that if you find your security in who you are, it makes us very susceptible to pride and judgment and looking down on other people. Come on with me. I've been in the church world for too long. You see judgment because people are self-righteous, but this does not just exist in the church. You hear me? And so we begin to use this favorite tool of comparing ourselves to one another because we're so invested in having higher self-esteem that we'll do whatever it takes to boost our self-image to ourselves. And we know better than to talk about this with one another, but we secretly, even from ourselves, practice this hidden comparison where we evaluate ourselves to other people and want to look down on others. Security that comes from yourself will lead to pride. Security, again, that comes from your own self will lead to pride and judgment. I love that there's this pastor, and he talks about this story that when he was a student, he was in class one day, and they're having this open discussion with the professor, and a lot of his fellow classmates, they had these brilliant answers, and he's just sitting in the back and didn't really know what to say. So he started to feel bad about himself, but he realized, like, man, these are just a bunch of nerds in this classroom, right? They probably spend all their time in the library. They've got nothing better to do. They're just a bunch of nerds. That's why they happen to know more. But he thought, I bet if they were out on the basketball court with me, like, these guys would be terrible. I would blow right by them. He said that later that day, he left that class and was playing basketball with a group of guys, and he was doing terrible. They were far better than he was. He was losing the game. So he started again to feel bad about himself, but then he thought, man, these are just a bunch of dumb jocks, right? I, I bet they're just out on the basketball court all day, but if I was in a classroom with them, I bet I would have way better grades than they do. And it struck him in that moment that based on where he is, he would compare himself to other people to put himself in the best light. Even hiding this from himself, not realizing he was doing this, but because he needed self-esteem, it led him to look down on other people so that he could feel better about himself. Do you see this? I love this pastor's honesty, but I mean, who hasn't done this before, right? Don't we feel this honestly in our own heart? The subtle eagerness we have to hear about other people and their failure, where they've gone wrong. We're like, oh, that's so bad. But partly, like, oh, that makes me feel so good about myself. They're failing, they're struggling, but that makes me feel a little bit better. Who hasn't done this in their heart? So a security that comes from ourselves, again, hear me, it will lead you into pride and to judgment. It will ruin community for you. It will separate you from other people, put you in competition. So how then, how then can we have real deep, authentic community and connection with one another. Come back with me to that word I started with, good news, the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done. It says this in Titus chapter 3. This is how Paul puts it in a letter as he's describing this good news. He says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. 
We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's a very honest take of what life is like if we do not know who we are and we live in competition and judgment towards one another and needing one another. We'll eventually learn to hate and be in competition. But hear this good news that Paul says. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So a security that comes from the love of God will lead to authentic community. Let me say it again. Security that we find not in ourselves, not in other people, but in the love of God will lead into real, genuine, deep, authentic community. And do you notice that Paul is saying in this passage that we are not accepted based on things that we do? This is so freeing for me. This means it's not shaken. This means it's not going to lead me into pride because if I'm not saved or received by God based on what I do, what then can I boast in? If God is loving me when I am at my worst, if I'm rescued only because of the death of Jesus for me, what then can I look down on other people in? This is why judgment and hypocrisy in the church make no sense. If there are people that really understand the gospel, that they're not saved based on what they do, but because of what Christ has done for them, it should lead into humility. What can I boast in? Or at the same time, do you see that this is not based on what other people say about us? It's not based in community, but it's based in the unshakable love of God. It's based in who he is and what he has done for us. So where's my anxiety now based on what other people? If God has declared who I am, the one who made all things, if he says that I have his love, what do I need to worry about what other people think of me? Do you see this good news? Here is an identity that's not going to be shaken based on what I do because it was never built on me in the first place. And here's an identity that's not going to be shaken by my failures or by my mistakes because it was never built on my successes in the first place. It was always built on Jesus Christ and his faithful love towards me. So let come what may, I know who I am in Jesus that he has given himself for me, and no one can rob me of that. So what then can separate us from the love of God? If he sees you and knows you right in the midst of all your worst behavior, all the things that would most fill you with shame, if he sees you exactly in that darkest place and says, I give myself for you, such is my love for you, what then could separate you from the love of God? That's his unshakable character. So hear me, Sterling College, here's a security that you can have that won't lead you into anxiety, but builds you up. But because it's not based on what you've done, it's not based in who you are, neither does it lead you into pride, into judgment, and looking down on other people. So you can begin to engage one another in deeper community. You can be honest and raw. You can be authentic in who you are. You can get rid of trying to look towards one another for affirmation. It will lead you into deeper community. So just a real quick question before I pray for us. How deep are your friendships? How content are you with your relationships here at Sterling College? Are you glad for the community you have? How deep is that? And how well known are you? 
Do people know the deepest raw failure parts of who you are? And what security, what identity are you living out of? And would you all pray with me? Lord, thank you that what you have done for us is not something that just remains back in history, but it is alive for us right now. God, you don't want these things just to remain mere words, but you want us to taste and really understand that you are a God who has given himself for us that we might know you. And that would be the very foundation, the bedrock of our identity and who we are. Lord, you grab a hold of students' hearts that they'd really see this and recognize every other other kind of identity from sports or family or friends is cheap and fading. Help us set our hearts on you. I pray this in your good name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.